Last time, uh, we covered the first 12 verses. And will we get done today with this chapter? I think so. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. We last left off. Jacob was on his deathbed. He was proclaiming to his sons a blessing. Uh, And in that blessing was both a prophetic kind of look forward as well as some judgment that came out of a reflection of what his sons had done uh, while they were together here on earth. Uh, We talked about Reuben, the firstborn, who didn't get firstborn birthright or firstborn preeminence. The preeminence went to Judah and the birthright went to Joseph. And uh, we mentioned that not one important person was recorded in the scriptures of coming out of the tribe of Reuben. And then we got to Simon and Simeon and Levi, They were violent men, angry, cruel, and their place of being counseled anybody was rejected. Jacob said, I wouldn't want to follow their counsel, uh, and they'll be dispersed in Israel. And certainly as we looked forward, we saw that they, indeed, the Levites became the priestly people and were spread all over in the the, uh, sanctuary cities. And Simeon... Their territory was contained within the territory of Judah. And so they were both diminished in that way. Judah, he said, that his brothers would praise him and that his hand would be on the neck of his enemies. And your father's sons will bow down to you. You'll be mighty. You'll be rich. The scepter won't depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And we see, of course, coming out of Judah, uh, not only that role of leadership as a conquest in the promised land, But David's throne would be out of the tribe of Judah, and that would be by God's promise and another covenant with David, an eternal throne that would be for eternity. As the Messiah came, Jesus would sit indeed on the throne of David. And then we saw, uh, then we come up to Zebulun today. So let's read, and I'm going to read some of these single verses just to make it a little easier for us to keep moving. And so let me read in Genesis 49, verse 13. We get to Zebulun. Zebulun, it says, will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be toward Sidon. So as we look at what those words say, uh, first of all, I'm going to ask you to just look at at this map. Oh, I've got to be careful. I'll mix everything up here. But... This map shows where Zebulun would be, and you'll find it up there above the two tribes of Manasseh. And Zebulun is not by the seashore. So we could speculate a few things here, but one thing that is absolutely for certain correct is that Zebulun was on the trade route for seafaring. And so they did interact with the sea trade and were very involved in that in, in many, many ways. Now if you look, and, and it says their flank will be toward Sidon, well Sidon, if you looked on that map, if you looked at Asher, it would be in the northernmost part of Asher. It was about 30 miles north of Zebulun. So in a sense, it's on their flank. Um, don't know what else to make of that. You don't read a lot in At least the sources I looked at didn't read a lot about how that fits in with Zebulun other than they definitely made their 
there a, a, a significant part of who they were were participating in that sea trade route that came right through them off of the ports there on the coast anybody have anything to add to that maybe you read something i didn't find because I, I didn't find a lot about that um it is interesting to read in contrast the way that Moses talked about Zebulun as they were parting out the various land parcels. Go over to Deuteronomy 33, and we'll look at verses 18 through 19. Deuteronomy 33, 18 and 19. And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Ishkar in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the, from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. So here is Zebulun drawing according to Moses' expectation uh, from the hidden treasures of the sea as well as out of the sand of the land. Uh, it was, it's called the Via Maris trade route and definitely was involved in sea trading. Zebulun, I, I, one of the things that I've done for most of these brothers, and it's a little tedious, uh, but looking for where's significance, what can I bring to the class today? And so I've done word searches using the computer throughout the whole scriptures for each of these names. And Zebulun gets mentioned, but never in any kind of significant, you know, like, oh, here's a piece to bring that, you know, flushes out who they were. And they just, just don't, there just isn't a lot uh, mentioned multiple times, but nothing that I picked up on well. I mean, I didn't read every passage, but I looked at the verse every one of those mentions were in. So not much mentioned the Bible is the way I would say it. Um, uh, so, um, but they were, but it is interesting to go over to Judges Look at um, look at Judges one thirty. Judges one thirty. This sets something up that uh, is interesting. It tells a little bit of the tale of how they handled moving into the promised land. Somebody read Judges 1.30 for us. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Um, that doesn't quite fit in with the directions they were given, does it? You know, they were told to flesh out, flesh out the Canaanites, put, put an end to them. And so now here we have Zebulun failing to do that, and it appears that a piece of doing that allowed them to have some forced labor. Um, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to go read this because it's kind of a listing, but in Judges 12, in a listing of judges, this judge judged, and then this judge judged, and then this one of those in that list is named Elon the Zebulonite. So there was a judge that came out of Zebulun. 
They also were good or strong in their support of David, King David later on. Let's look at 1 Chronicles 12, 33. And we may be looking at that same 1 Chronicles 12 again as we go through this. <coughs> 1 Chronicles 12, 33. David's in a crisis moment. Uh, he's needing some support and his supporters gather at Hebron and this is the words about Nebulun's, uh, the tribe of Nebulun's support of David at this time. And so there in verse 33 we read, Of Zebulun there were 50,000 who went out in the army and listen to the description of them who could draw up in battle formation with all kinds of weapons of war and helped David with an undivided heart. So it would look like they got this right in the course of the history of Israel. The tribe of Zebulun provided soldiers uh, that were undivided in their loyalty with regard to supporting King David. So that takes us on to Issachar. And if somebody would read verses 14 and 15 out of Genesis 49, I would appreciate that. Genesis 49, 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. All right. So uh, when we read that, uh, most of our images, I need to be careful. I'm not over into the politics side here. I'm into just animal representations. But when we think of describing somebody as a donkey, we probably would not put that in a favorable light, would we? That would be kind of a disrespectful thing to think of for somebody, but in reality, uh, a donkey had a higher standing in this era probably than we would think of today. We don't use donkeys a lot, but in the day, donkeys were used a lot for transportation, uh, used a lot as beasts of burden. They were considered strong and a number of other good things about a donkey. As a matter of fact, the traditional way for a new ruler to come into an area is on the back of what? A small donkey, a young donkey. That's how Jesus came in on the triumphal entry. There's another value for donkeys that some of you probably are aware of and, and I wasn't. Um, until recently and then then this came up and I put the two together and it was put together for me and even commentary but the donkey is a natural herder and so a donkey is a you know we it's not that you might use them like you would use a sheepdog um, they, they don't they don't move on command from pen to pen but they like to be with the herd they like to see the herd kept together and I said that like I know and maybe they actually do but I'm not aware of that but one of the things that they're real good at is protecting a flock from dogs or coyotes. And so there are people that will pasture donkeys with, with various smaller animals, goats, sheep, because if you've got dogs or coyotes in the area that tend to be a problem, they're very good at taking care of dogs and coyotes that would like to bother the flock. And so when we read this, I think the best way to understand it is as Issachar being a strong donkey, 
lying down between the sheepfolds is there is a often plays a role of protector. Also about Issachar, when he saw that a resting place was good and the land was pleasant, he took on the work. He bowed his shoulder to bear the burdens and became a slave to forced labor. And, and I think we should look at that, not that they were taken into slavery, but in order to have the land produce, they recognized they had to be self-governed push themselves to let the land kind of be their master to make sure that it worked well. And in my experience, I did live a lot of my life around a very successful farmer. And with one exception, that land really was his master. And he, glee, he found glee in that because he loved being a servant to the land to make the land both produce well, clean fields, good crops, often the best crops in the area. Now he had good land to work with, he was in the Kansas River bottom. That's about as good as it gets. But, or at least in this day and age, if I went to the other side of the family, they'd tell you the Blue River Valley, by statistics and every other way, was far more productive, but it's under Tuttle Creek now. Um, but nonetheless, when I read this, that's kind of what I think of. And indeed, um, they saw a good resting place. That was the area that they settled uh, in their um, taking of the promised land. And so if you look at, Ish at Ishakar, um, I'm having my eyes having trouble seeing them. They're right up there southwest of the Sea of Galilee. And indeed, it was a chunk of very productive ground. They were known for how well that came out and how well they tended that land. It was productive and they worked it for their own benefit and that's what they were known for. They were very focused on, we've got good ground here, we're going to grow good crops. Judges chapter 10, I'm just going to tell you, it's there mentions a judge from the tribe of Ishakar named Tola. And like Zebulun, they did support King David well. Go over and read it back again in 1 Chronicles 12, verse 32. And we often turn to this verse when we're talking about wisdom and paying attention to what's going on in the world and discerning how we should be responding to it, which wouldn't that be very valuable in these confusing days. Numbers 12, I shouldn't say confusing, but troubling might be a better word. First Corinthians, Numbers 12, oh, I'm in the wrong place. First Chronicles 12, verse 32. Somebody have that? I'll just quit. Read that for us if you do. First Chronicles 12, 32. Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Okay, so Issachar was the tribe that was known for their discernment in knowing what to do in the times that David was faced with difficulty and battle was ahead. And so they, are, they were a leading tribe in that regard as well during David's conflict. Any, any other comments about Issachar? Anything you might have read somewhere that you'd go, hey, this is important too. Okay, let's talk about Dan. Dan is seen in verse 16. And in verse 16 we read, Now, oops, 
Maybe I better go back over to 49. Uh, Dan shall judge his people. I guess there are several verses here, 16 through 18. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. So, what do you think of Dan? Would you want to be from the tribe of Dan and known with that kind of a description? Well, in verse 16 it says, He shall judge his people as one of the tribes of, of Israel. Um, and they were an aggressive tribe. And they provided one well-known judge uh, that came against the Philistines at the time of his presence. The Philistines were actually ruling most of Israel. And that is Samson. Samson was out of the tribe of Dan. And he married a Philistine woman, as you remember, and he was a real thorn in the Philistine side. If he needed some recreation, he'd spend a day out on the plains killing Philistines. And he was very successful because he had such great God-given strength. He didn't have very much God-given wisdom in how he handled some things. One of the key things that he handled poorly was letting this Philistine woman worm her way into knowing both his role and how that role with the strength was provided through his long hair. And she was a traitor to him and they cut off his hair and then they were able to bind him and eventually he took the lives of many being in their temple with his eyes gouged out but he pushed the pillars over as his hair had grown back out and the building fell and killed many of the leading Philistines. Um, the tribe of Dan was not known for their moral standing or their godliness at any at any time, including the time of Samson. Um, let's look at an account, then we will then go back and look at the rest of these verses about Dan. I think they'll make more sense with this context. Let's go over to 1 Kings chapter 12. I'm going to ask somebody to read verses 28 through 33. This is an example that includes Dan to understand who they are a little bit. Just to give you some background before we read those verses, we're in the time where the kingdom of Israel has been split. It's after Solomon, and Jeroboam is ruling in the north. And let's see what happens uh, in the leadership of Jeroboam. Now we're kind of pulling it out of the middle, but uh, these few verses. Uh, 1 Kings 12, 28 through 33. If somebody's got that, you can go ahead and read that. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
and he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifice on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day and the 18th month, and the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Okay. And so... What was the starting point? What was the thing that Jeroboam believed that caused him to take action? Look at verses 26 and 27. The kingdom would turn back to the house of David. If they did what? Worship Yahweh. Worship Yahweh where? What's in Jerusalem? The temple. So the worship of the Israelites was directed to be centered around the temple. And it was, a, it was a part of their worship to go to the temple, to make sacrifices in the temple, to cover their sins in that, to devote themselves to God and to show reverence to God, worship God. That was a part of it. And he said, well, if they do that, their hearts will return to the Lord. What's his problem with that? Is that a bad thing? Is it In his eyes, it's bad, right? Because of power. If they go start going back to Jerusalem for their worship, then they also then will follow Rehoboam, the king of Judah, the southern king. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So he's got a problem. And go ahead. I think it's interesting how he equates going, them, them worshiping the true king as recognizing that the David uh, Davidic line is the actual ruler of Israel. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he knows this is what will happen, or at least, I mean, can we say that his forward-looking view, I don't know forward in a good way, but semi-prophetic, I don't know that truly it was prophetic from God's perspective, but he recognized what would happen if the people kept their hearts turned toward God? They would also follow then. Jerusalem would become the capital. It's the real center and all those things. So it doesn't say who he consulted with, but the king consulted. And out of his consulting, he made what? Two golden calves. And what he's beginning to do is what we call in the modern vernacular consolidation of power. I'm going to get things centered around me and my kingship. My, this kingdom will be separate and this is how we're going to keep the people lined up with following me. And he tells the people, is implied there, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. By the way, that word up is significant. Jerusalem was higher ground. So that they called it up. Behold your gods, O Israel. What does he just tell him? When he says, Behold your gods, what's he talking about? Calves. 
the two calves he's just made that have been brought up from the land of Egypt. When were golden calves involved in coming out of the land of Egypt? Yeah, Moses is up on the hill and the people are down in the, at the base of the hill and they are down there going, we don't know what happened to Moses. There's fire and things happening on the mountain. He might be burned up for all we know. We need to, and so then they make the golden calves and they want to worship them. Um, and so he made these golden calves. You, you know, I've I got to say this going by. This says something about the people's own knowledge of what happened in the Exodus. If you knew and understood the truth of the Exodus travel and all the things that happened, would you go, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go back to the golden calves. That really worked out well. No, you wouldn't be doing that. But they followed him in this. He set one in Bethel and the other he put where? In Dan. Now this thing became a sin. So here's God's perspective now. The people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. We'll talk about that a little bit too before we're done. He also went ahead and made houses on the high places and made priests from among all the people who were not the sons of Levi. How does that settle with God's direction? I mean, here is, here is Jeroboam, and he is in the process of violating everything God said about, in the, you could go to the Ten Commandments very quickly and say, no graven image. He's also violating everything God set up about the Levites being the only ones from which the priestly line could come. And he instituted feasts on the eighth of the month, the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. They went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests and the high places which he had made. And he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense. And Dan was one of the centers of this worship. And that probably makes some sense. And we'll talk more about that as we go on and look at some of these verses yet in Genesis 49. Looking at verse 17. <clears throat> Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels, so his rider falls backwards. What kind of a picture is this? It creates some vivid images for me. Um, at age about three, and I'm not going to go into much detail, but I had an encounter with a snake. What kind, I don't know. But I know it was a frightening encounter. And I was on my own and had to create my own escape, and lots of things got involved. A very emotional uh, snake is never part of a joke with me. Um, some people, it might be funny to kind of put a snake in their face, and not me. Um, and so, um, as I would grow up, and you know, westerns were a big part of the culture, weren't they, in 60s and 70s, and watching movies, and you know, anytime that rattlesnake got involved, I was like, okay, I need to go somewhere else. They were, it was too much for me. And when I look at this picture, it, it's not just that the snake bites at the heels 
of the horse, but then you can make this easily get this picture so that the rider falls backward. Well, where's backward going to be? Do you think the horse stayed around to deal with the snake? No, the horse takes off and now the man is back there on the ground. No horse with the snake, right? Isn't that the image you get here? Now, if you were Dan and your dad was talking about you, how's this going to feel? Not very good. Um, and Jacob is saying, this is what you're going to be to your siblings. Uh, he's going to be a judge of his people, yes. One of the tribes, yes. He's also going to be a serpent in a way and is a horned snake. He's going to scare the horse and cause the rider to fall. He is threatening to Israel. And Jacob knows it. How he knows is what God has revealed to him. And so this is what Dan is going to be. And Dan indeed was a tribe with a lack of morality and godliness. Um, if we went back to, if we went over to Joshua 19, and we're not going to because it would just be a simple statement, but they failed to their conquer a land that was allotted to them. So here is another failure to do what they were directed to do. And in Judges 18, it's a whole big portion to read, but the tribe of Dan became dissatisfied with where they were and their allotment of land. So at least a very significant group of them, the, the majority of them, um, went en route and found themselves a new home. If you look at this map, you will see that the land allotted to Dan was on the coast, just to the west of Ephraim. Um, and they, they did fail to take it, but if you look at the other one I gave you, and this is why I gave it to you, you will see that over to the right, in that lower right-hand corner, the tribe of Dan doesn't stay down there. They actually migrate up into the very northern part and put themselves up uh, in the area of Naphtali, there to the east of them, and next to a very um, strong um, continued inhabitants of idol worshipers. And indeed, the tribe of Dan becomes very involved in idolatry. And it's interesting, all of this is done despite God's promises. God promised the tribes that you will be successful in taking this land. But the tribe of Dan, like some others, took things into their own hands. And they gave up on conquering the land down there. And as a result, um, they also then decided, ah, we can do better for ourselves up north. And so they're out on their own, and they become very much involved in idolatry. And verse 18 is interesting. Here is Jacob talking about this tribe that would be dangerous to their brothers. And 
would get themselves involved in this idolatry. And in verse 18, he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. And this is very, very interesting. Because Jacob is looking at the tribe of Dan and sees the truth that's implied in that statement. He knows that of themselves, they're a disaster. In the eyes of God, they're idolaters, they're their own way, and taking all kinds of different direction. And they've been involved in sins throughout their time. And so he says, almost as a prayer, Lord, save Dan. They are the tribe that is not saved in a way. Let's look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 8. And this, this isn't a particularly exciting chapter, uh, or exciting group of verses to read, but it's in one way, it is very exciting in another. So Revelation 7, 4 through 8. And uh, we're working our way through in the book of Revelation the events surrounding the second coming, the ultimate victory of Jesus over sinful men, over the evil that has been in the world, and eventually over death itself fully and completely. But here's what we see in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 7. And somebody read those for us. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. What name did we just not read? Dan. The tribe of Dan, when we get to this moment where the prophecy, they will look, look on whom whom they pierced and will accept him as, as Messiah in a sense. I mean, that's, that's occurring in these people rec are called, are sealed to be witnesses for Jesus Christ and they're they are 12,000 from the tribes of Israel. But it's interesting, Dan is not a tribe in that group. And in that group, we see both Joseph and Manasseh, they're both listed, and Levi, of course, is in the list, but Dan is not. And as we look in Genesis we see that Jacob seems to be aware that Dan's future is not included in the promises ultimately. And so Dan is this backward, I shouldn't say backward, this problem tribe for them. Um, and Joseph is pleading for salvation for them there in verse uh, 18. And then verse 19 we get to Gad. Anything else on the tribe of Dan? 
they won't be saved? Well, they're not in the... When we look at the end times, I'm not going to say that I know that there are no people from the tribe of Dan that are saved. But when these 144,000 Jews, when we allot 12,000 from each tribe to be sealed and become witnesses for Jesus Christ, the tribe of Dan is not included in that list. I mean, I, I think it would be unlikely that if throughout all of history there was never someone from the tribe of Dan that was indeed saved. Um, but, but as far as that group being included in that look in Revelation at the 144,000 from the offspring of Jacob, 12,000 per tribe, that's not one of the tribes that will be witnessing for him at that time out of this ceiling. So let's look at, at um, Gad. And Gad, not many words said here. As for Gad, in verse 19, Raiders shall raid him, but he will be at their heels. And so probably the best place to start is to look again at this map. Oh, come on, baby. This map, if you look at this map, you'll notice that there are three tribes that are to the east of the Jordan or the lakes that are formed by Jordan and Gad is one of those. You see Manasseh there, we'll talk about Manasseh under Joseph and you can also see Reuben, we talked about him at the beginning but those three tribes because of being east of the Jordan are easier prey for people for other nations that would like to attack them and it says here that they're going to be raided but they will raid back at the heels and indeed they were raided a number of times but they also were fierce fighters and they would respond and chase them out and and make it all work so they were subject to attacks and strong defenders um, but they also supported david well let's look at first corinthians 12 8 through 15. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 15. I'm sorry. Chronicles. Take the Corinthians out. 1 Chronicles 12, 8 through 15. Thank you. I should not abbreviate that much. 1 Chronicles 12, 8 through 15. Who's got that for us? From the Gadites there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Ezer, the chief of Obadiah, second Eliab, third, Mishmana, fourth, Jeremiah, fifth, Atai sixth, Eliel seventh, Johanan eighth, Elzabad ninth, Jeremiah tenth, Macbenenei eleventh. These Gadites were officers of the army. The last was a match for a hundred men and the greatest four thousand. 
These are the men who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks and put to fight all those in the valleys to the east and to the west. So they were experienced soldiers. They were often raided themselves and when called upon to help David, uh, they were mighty. Um, a hundred of them could handle a thousand of another and they were uh, very good at what they did and they, as a result, in verse 15, they crossed the Jordan when it was overflowing at its banks. So they forded high water and they put to flight all those in the valleys, both to the east and to the west. So they were very successful on behalf of David. Um, and another one is First Chronicles 5, 18 through 22. I thought this was... This was interesting. Um, this this is uh, in 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 part of the discussion of genealogies and the descendants. But First uh, Chronicles five eighteen through twenty two. I can read that. The sons of Reuben and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh, consisting of valiant men, men who bore shield and sword and shot with a bow and were skillful in battle where there were 44,760 who went to war. They made war against the Hagrites, Jephthah, Naphish, and Nadab. They were helped against them and the Hagrites and all who were with them were given into their hand for they cried out to God in the battle and he answered their prayers and because they trusted in him, they took away their cattle there are 50,000 camels, 250,000 sheep, 2,000 donkeys, and 100,000 men. For many fell slain because the war was of God. And they settled in their place until the exile. This is how they managed to take their ground. And they were very successful at it, unlike some of the others who had more help. And so that is Gad. Asher's in verse 20. Let me get back over to Genesis 49. As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Uh, and so uh, if you look at the map, Asher is up in the northwest, and they were able to grow very fine food and were known for their gourmet type foods and eating. Uh, it's a rich coastal region and so that's what they were known for. And that's what I've got for you on Asher. In Naphtali is in verse 21. Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. And uh, when we look at Naphtali, the history tells us that he was deer-like in speed and agility when involved in battles. So this isn't all just kind of some fluffy, I don't know that I want to describe it that way, but it's not just uh, about um, the beautiful words. Um, the tribe of Naphtali was involved with the battles that Deborah and Borak fought and they, the Deborah and Borak were both hailed from Naphtali. And in Judges 5, we see a very long discourse that's called the, the Song of Deborah, 
but they praised the army from Naphtali for being very skilled in battle and successful. So now I need to make a decision about how I want to handle this. Um, well, let's look at Joseph and see if we can work our way through Joseph today. Um, don't want to quit at an awkward spot here. But in Joseph, now we turn, and Jacob has much more to say. There in Genesis 49, we're going to look at verses 22 through 26. And if I could get a volunteer, I welcome somebody reading that for us. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb, blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Okay, so going back to verse 27, or I'm sorry, 22. Joseph is a fruitful bow, bow, a truthful, a fruitful bow by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. So we get a picture here. You can make this image. Joseph produces. And he just produces and produces and produces. And uh, if you were comparing it to um, something growing on a, on a bough, I mean, it's just overtaking the wall, it's coming over the top, and it's like he's by a spring, so it's always getting the water it needs and just keeps going forward. And, that, and it's very healthy in its production. And that certainly is what we have seen out of Joseph in his life. Everywhere he went... He was yielding great fruit and successful in managing what was in front of him. Potiphar, the prison, and eventually the whole kingdom of Egypt. <clears throat> and what was the source of his success? Was it that he was such a gifted manager? God was with him. God was with him. We kept hearing that over and over and over. And I don't know that it was intentional in Jacob's thought process, but I would say to you, if we want to understand what that spring that fed Joseph was, we would be looking at God himself. And beyond just a spring, I mean, God was the strength. God was in charge of the details and everything that was happening. And as we look forward, archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm. His arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. So here is a picture of Joseph who was under attack. The first attack actually started at home, didn't it? He told about a dream to his brothers. They didn't appreciate it. He also had gone down earlier and reported back on how they're handling the flocks and didn't give them a very good report. They didn't appreciate it. And then he told another dream that included his parents, or at least his father, in it, 
And his dad didn't appreciate it at first, but it says he remembered it and thought about it. And then he's physically attacked by his brothers, right? They throw him in the pit. <clears throat> Intention is to kill him, but instead they sell him to these traders, and he winds up in Potiphar's house and is very successful as a slave managing Potiphar's household. Until he's attacked by Potiphar's wife. And she manages to get him discredited and thrown in prison. And so now he's running the prison and doing very well. And he tells a couple of dreams through the power of God. He lets them know what the dreams mean. And in a way, he's even attacked there. Because the men get out, one, of course, to his destruction, but the other one to be restored to be the cupbearer to Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt. And does he remember Joseph? No, Joseph was just a guy that told him he was going to get set free until things get tough with the king and everything's upset in the king's household, in Pharaoh's household. And then he decides to remember. I think that's got to be the right way of saying it. How could you forget a man that foretold a dream for you that accurately predicted? predicted your freedom but he decides to remember Joseph and that is the beginning of Joseph being extremely fruitful for Egypt itself and so here's here is this picture and this is the way that Jacob describes him and he said that this came from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob so who is Jacob giving credit to for Joseph's successes God himself. And it's interesting here, as we begin to look at this, uh, we see here from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, this is the used name for God in much poetry, Abir, and it means the strong, and it's only used as a term to describe God. And then he also says, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and once again, uh, he is referring to God as a shepherd. The stone of Israel here, if you look that up, that means a building stone. I don't know that it's intentional that it be connected here, but I think of the rejected cornerstone. And I think it's similar to that. Um, we're going to talk more about Joseph as we wrap up Genesis and and how he fits in in comparison with Christ. But so God with Joseph and God made them a nation and brought them out of Egypt. And when we look at the map here, we're going to see that uh, we see Manasseh and Ephraim. And in the way we're talking about things here, though that really is Joseph. Remember Manasseh and Ephraim? Now, Manasseh is not the important tribe. Ephraim, Ephraim is. And Ephraim, you can see down there just north of where uh, Jerusalem would be. No, nope, I'm misspeaking. Uh, yeah, it's, it's about even with Jerusalem. Um, and then Manasseh is the other part of Joseph. And they're called the half-tribes because... One tribe's east of the Jordan, the other is west of the Jordan. 
and it really is a different existence depending on which side of the Jordan you happen to be on because those areas east of the Jordan were not as easy to hold. They actually were kind of a buffer along with the Jordan River from those in the east that would like to have been taking Israel's ground and putting them out of business as a country. Not too much unlike today, huh? But Manasseh was a half-tribe, so if you look at that between Ephraim and the two, two half-tribes of Manasseh, Joseph's offspring received a considerable amount of ground in the uh, promised land. Um, and verse 25 goes on. From the God of your father who helps you. And that time the name for God is El. And he goes on to say. And um, by the almighty who blesses you. And so that should I in El almighty. Blessings of the deep and beneath beneath the. Blessings of the breasts and the womb. Um, and so when we look at this passage, we see Jacob using multiple names of God to describe multiple ways in which God has led him as a shepherd, been a stone to him, uh, and he's received help from God, blessings from God, with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breasts and the womb. Verse 26, the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. May they be these great blessings on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. When Jacob gets done talking about Joseph, it's like he's invoked every part of who God is. He said it in multiple ways. To make it clear that God is truly, completely blessing Joseph and in many ways with fullness from every source in every direction and in every way. And so clearly Jacob is extolling what God has done through Joseph. And certainly Jacob would never have said that the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Jacob has just said here, my blessings are greater than Abraham and Isaac. He would never have been able to say that apart from what God had done through Joseph. If Joseph had not been who he was in Egypt and had not been revealed back to his father, would Jacob have said, I'm really blessed above everybody else? No, he would have had a different outcome. So we see through Joseph great blessings laid upon Jacob and laid upon all of Israel. We're particularly going to see that in verse 50. By all of Israel, I mean all of the 12 tribes, that they would become a nation and be preserved. And so this is a great testimony to what God has done through Joseph by his own power and with his own blessing. Um, I've got things down here I would like to say, but I'm going to say we're out of time, and we'll pick it up there at the, 
the end of verse, uh, beginning with verse 27 next time. And before we're done summarizing what we've just seen in the blessings of the 12 tribes and the foundation that's laid for a nation here, uh, we'll come back and pick up some of the things I would have said right here. Any questions or comments before we come to an end today? I noticed Ephraim wasn't in the Revelation passage either. Manasseh and Ephraim weren't. Manasseh, Manasseh. Manasseh was. Yeah. Uh, Ephraim wasn't because Ephraim and Joseph are created, okay. are, are equated um, at that point. So when you hear about Joseph, you're hearing about Ephraim. As the first, as the one blessed, like he was the firstborn. Yeah, quick question on, on Dan. Um, the city of Dan is in the Naphtali region. Is that because he, they took that region? Well, it, it's interesting, and and my my expectation is, or my intuition is, that there are references to the city of Dan. I'll get back to my intuition in a minute. The city of Dan is referenced even in previous travels before we get to Jacob in these 12 tribes. And so I really believe that as Moses is writing it, he's probably using that what was the name of this city in his day, meaning it became Dan because they, they did name it after themselves. But I don't know that. Maybe there was another Dan uh, city that was already in existence before they went up there. I don't know for sure, but I really think that's probably the case that they probably spilled over into that region of Naphtali and probably borrowed a little bit of that choice ground so they could have some gourmet food too. They, they were, Dan was not a, not a tribe of high morals or high standards. They didn't mind a bit making their own course and sealing their own destiny in a negative way. Anything else? Good question. Because that city of Dan is out there is kind of, I see it here and I see it there and I, what, what is up with the city of Dan is a good question that I don't have a complete answer to. All right, well, let me close in prayer. Father, we're looking at you forming this nation <clears throat> putting the people together here in Egypt that will become a nation and you will call them up out of Egypt. Lord, let us learn our lessons from it. Um, I know, Lord, right now we're still just gathering data, but Lord, let us draw the right conclusions as we understand what you are doing in blessing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all those that come after him because you made promises to them and you kept them. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to them. And we look forward to your grace to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.